0: Welcome back to Behind the Wings. Wow, does that feel good to say. We're back, John. Can you believe it?
1: (laughs) Well, we are recording right now, so believe it or not, we are back in Season 3 of Behind the Wings. And 10 new episodes are coming your way.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into topics like refueling satellites in space, America's secret MiG-23 training program, artificial intelligence in aviation, and so much more.
1: We have some great topics and dare I say, even better guests coming up. And today's episode is one of them. Maybe we should get into the rest of the intro, Rick.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Welcome to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in beautiful Denver, Colorado, and we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Well, we've made it to episode 21, and we are so glad to have you along for the ride. Now, make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, consider leaving us a rating. It's the best way for new people to discover the show, and we really do appreciate it. As we approach the 54th anniversary of Apollo 11 and the Apollo program, we've got an exciting two-part conversation for today's episode. So John, what do we have for folks today in this extraterrestrial episode?
1: Yes, Rick, you're absolutely right. We've got an exciting one today. On July 20th, we'll be celebrating the 54th anniversary of Apollo 11 and its groundbreaking achievement of bringing the first humans to the moon. This event not only left a huge impact on America, but the rest of the world as well. The broadcast was watched by more than, get this, 53 million households. 53
0: million, and I certainly was one of those young Americans watching that historic launch. In today's show, we're looking back at the diverse legacies of Apollo, from the scientific to the political. Our guests today are Dr. Teasel Muir-Harmony, who is currently the Project Apollo curator at the National Air and Space Museum, and has written two books on the subject. We're going to deep dive into the Apollo mission and how it affected politics, national unity, and ultimately spaceflight. And stay with us for the second half of today's show. We'll hear from Dr. Harrison Schmidt, an Apollo 17 astronaut, and one of the last people on the moon. That, my friends, is a lot to learn in this episode. Pack your bags, well, at least your spacesuits, as we're taking one giant leap back to the moon. This one is going to be cool. Let's get started. Dr. Teasel Muir-Harmony, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Let's start
0: just with the obvious beginning, I guess. A little introduction about yourself. What got you interested in space exploration? You know, specifically the Apollo program of all about space that there is. What drew you to this?
2: I was interested in the history of astronomy from a very young age, but my interest in Apollo really grew from my time in the archives. So when I was going through various archival collections, looking into um, the history of science diplomacy, and I came across some material related to the role of spaceflight in American diplomacy in the 1960s, and the material was fascinating, and the more I learned about it, the more excited I got and ended up uh, pursuing a research project related to Apollo and diplomacy for many years. And then, lucky enough, I ended up at the National Air and Space Museum as the curator of the Apollo program. So my day-to-day now is is filled with uh, Apollo history.
1: Well, we we're going to cover a lot in the interview about the Apollo program, clearly, but its scientific and political goals, as well as how Apollo lay the groundwork for the Artemis program, which we're all excited about now. Of course, it's uh, current, and it's one of those things that we're all looking forward to going back to the moon. But to help set the stage for the legacy of Apollo... I want to start with an example from your book. Now, Apollo to the Moon, A History in 50 Objects is the title of the book. where you discuss Neil Armstrong's experience on Apollo 11? As part of this mission, Armstrong, as some must know, brought with him cloth from the Wright brothers' first flight. By the way, our museum has a piece of cloth uh, too and also one of the patches that he carried to the moon here at Wings Over the Rockies. And it shows not only the power of objects to bring history alive, Because you can see it and maybe even touch it sometimes, but also the evolution of flight from the first Kitty Hawk North Carolina flight to the historic space endeavor. So Apollo 11, the first human space flight to land on the moon in July of 1969. So tell us about how you thought about these 50 objects in your book and specifically what was significant about Armstrong bringing the Wright brothers' cloth to the moon? What does it show us about the evolution of flight?
2: Well, as a curator, I really do appreciate artifacts, not surprisingly. And I thought it would be great to tell the history of Apollo through artifacts um, and to choose a selection of artifacts that really touched on all these various aspects of the Apollo program. Now, you could write countless books about Apollo from lots of different perspectives. There's a question of how we got to the moon. You could do focus on um, an engineering history, there's the politics, there's the domestic politics. There's diplomacy, there are lots of individual stories. I mean, there are lots of ways to think about the Apollo program. It is an incredibly significant program that touched on the lives of almost everyone on Earth. So I thought that uh, selecting a a collection of artifacts to tell that story that relate to those different ways that we can think about Project Apollo would be a useful way um, to introduce the topic to people. So I start off the book with that piece of the Wright Brothers flyer that Armstrong brought to the moon because I thought it was a wonderful demonstration of how objects can connect us to the past and how Armstrong Mm -hmm. recognized that and connected his flight to that first flight of the Wright brothers. And uh, it was a demonstration of that connection, bringing those two important moments in history together and really uniting them through an artifact. And I chose artifacts in the book that really demonstrate um, not only the history of Apollo from a lot of different perspectives, but the important role that artifacts play in our lives.
0: I think when we were getting ready for this discussion, I liked this artifact I'm going to ask you about an awful lot. But so often when we think of Apollo, we think of the scientific impulse behind the project, and that obviously was part of it, but also had a political function in the context of the Cold War. So hop in our time machine, we're going back to the night of September 26, 1960, where John F. Kennedy and then Vice President Richard Nixon sat for the first televised presidential debate to a viewership of roughly 70 million Americans. Kennedy later said he wouldn't have won the presidency without TV on his side. And it's exemplified by another one of the objects you highlight in your book, Apollo to the Moon, with the chair Kennedy used in that very debate.
1: The Soviet Union is making great gains. It isn't enough to compare what might have been done eight years ago, or 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, or 20 years ago. I want to compare what we're doing with what our adversaries are doing. So that by the year 1970, the United States is ahead.
0: Kennedy's experience with the power of television certainly helped set the stage for the uh, Apollo program as well. We so often focus on the scientific merits of Apollo, but what did it mean politically, and what can we learn from Kennedy's debate chair? I I was just, I was so fascinated with this selection of artifacts. Uh
2: The debate chair has been a little bit controversial. Not everyone likes that I've included it, but I wanted to include it to talk about this story of how Kennedy was really attuned to public relations and public image, and both when it came to domestic politics, so when he was running for president, he understood the importance of this public debate of of television, of the way he presented himself to the American people having an impact on being elected and then in his political career as well. But he also understood this in terms of foreign relations, and he appreciated the importance of public impressions of the United States. So to him, the way he talked about it is winning the hearts and minds of the world public. Now, he thought this was necessary for U.S. global power, especially within the context of the Cold War. And if you go back and you read his first proposal of Project Apollo to Congress in May 1961, he's very, very explicit about why he's proposing to send humans to the moon. And he talks about the impact of Sputnik and Gagarin's flight on the impact of the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road to take. And so... The debate chair ties into this larger approach Kennedy had in politics and how he understood public relations and its relationship to, uh, to politics.
1: Now, let's get a bit deeper into what we learned from Apollo. It was partly about science mission, of course, but also, as we had been discussing, had large societal, even global impacts. Now, we'll make an example of what your latest book of Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. You write in the book, John F. Kennedy identifies and leverages the political power of image. But acting director of the U.S. Information Agency, Donald Wilson said, what he, meaning Kennedy, understood less was the proper direction of American space program. Ultimately, those iconic images of Apollo 11, watched by the majority of Americans at the time and viewed around the world, bolstered American national strength. How did Kennedy bridge that gap from initially having some skepticism about the role of space exploration to championing the Apollo program? It's almost as if he knew how powerful those images and broadcasts of Apollo would be for America's national image and strength. What changed Kennedy's mind that going to the moon was important, despite that he knew it would be incredibly challenging and an expensive endeavor?
2: Kennedy's mind was changed by the public, international public response to uh, Yuri Gagarin's flight. Now, this was the Soviet Union's achieved the first human spaceflight uh, with Yuri Gagarin's flight. Had a huge impact on the way that Kennedy thought about spaceflight and space exploration. He was following how that news was reported internationally, and that was followed in quick succession by the failure of the Bay of Pigs. And that had a negative impact on the image of the United States abroad. And so Kennedy saw this in terms of, we need to improve the United States image abroad. How do we do it? Space exploration is really capturing the imagination of people. It's really impacting the ways that people think about the Soviet Union and the United States. um, And so it'll be necessary to invest in spaceflight. And I think it's important to emphasize that before Kennedy became president, he wasn't that interested in space. His science advisor did an assessment of the American space program and recommended that he even consider canceling the Mercury program. Now, this is the, the first um, American human spaceflight program. I uh, was very, very skeptical about human spaceflight. There were proposals, estimates, for how much it would cost to send humans to the moon um, months and months in advance of Apollo. So the Eisenhower administration got them, Kennedy got them during transition, and it was seemed just far too expensive and, and not what the nation should be investing in at the time. Now, things changed very, very quickly for Kennedy. Um, And that's in large part because of the success of the Soviet Union's human spaceflight, Yuri Gagarin's flight, and the international response to that coupled with uh, the Bay of Pigs. And it became clear to Kennedy very quickly that it had to be space. So initially, he thought that the U.S. had to have some kind of demonstration of its technological and scientific capability. And he thought maybe something like the desalination of water or some other type of impressive feat. But it became clear that it had to be space exploration so he asked his advisors to find him a space program and this is how we put it that promises dramatic results that we can win so the drama (laughs) of it that public relations side of it the image of it was sort of baked in from the very very start and his advisors came back with this idea that we send humans to the moon we land them there return them safely back to the earth before the end of the decade
1: we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too.
0: There's so many achievements and takeaways from Apollo. You know that better than than John and I. Technological advancements, international cooperation, scientific discoveries, human achievement. We've talked to quite a bit about the political side, but when you look back on what stands out to you as uh, the major achievement of the program and Apollo's legacy, what is that? I mean, if you can only write a book about one of them, right? There's one thing, Tiesel, and you can write about this. What would it be?
2: Oh, that's a hard question. I think that one of the great legacies or achievements of Project Apollo was demonstrating that extraordinarily challenging things uh, can be achieved. Now, that sounds relatively vague, but I'll I'll pair it up with a story that Kennedy said to explain, you know, why are we sending humans to the moon? And he referenced an Irish short story where there was um, some kids walking through a field. Um, and they get to a wall. And so one kid takes his cap and throws it over the wall. And the the question is, is why? And he said, well, now we have to go over the wall. Now we have to figure out a way to get over there. So this idea that you pursue something that seems daunting, that extremely difficult um, and challenging uh, with the expectation that you'll figure out how to do it. And I think that Culturally, we still talk about, you know, if you can send a man to the moon, you can do X, Y, and Z, or the word moonshot is applied to a lot of different things, uh, even today, because it really captures that aspect of the Apollo program, which is that it is an extremely large, complex, challenging project that people need to come together to solve. And you might not know the exact solution when you start, but the the expectation is that you're going to figure out a way to make that program successful.
1: It was a wild west era in a sense. Everything was new. What was the impact of these discoveries on our understanding of the moon and space exploration?
2: When it comes to what had to be developed for the Apollo program, it's almost endless. And one thing I love to do is show people the Freedom 7 spacecraft. Now this was the um, spacecraft flown. This is the first successful American flight achieved by Alan Shepard in 1961. That was the f- entire extent of our human spaceflight experience when Kennedy proposed Project Apollo. And it's wonderful seeing you in person because you really get a sense for how bold Kennedy's proposal was at that time. We had to develop uh, the Saturn V. We had to learn about rendezvous and docking. We didn't know what being in space would do to the human body. We hadn't had people in space for days and days on end. We didn't know if they could survive. And John Glenn, who was the first American uh, to do an orbital flight, part of what they were testing is how well he could eat in space. Now, that's a very basic thing. This is how much we didn't know. We didn't know what it would be like to land on the moon, um, how much you might sink into the lunar surface. So what had to be learned and what had to be developed is is almost endless. And one of the things I like doing as a curator, you know, we have so many artifacts from Project Apollo, and you can pick almost any single one and talk about all the work that went into that development and how many individual things had to be thought through in order to make the program a success. And I love pointing out the heat shield on the command module. And uh, it's a honeycomb shape. The honeycomb is filled with resin that was injected each cell by hand um, by people. And they, whenever there were any kinds of issues with the heat shield um, after they x-rayed it. They would drill those out and prepare them to ensure that it would be safe. And that is just one small element in thousands and thousands of different aspects of the program that had to be figured out, had to be paid close attention to, to ensure that that program was a success. So uh, always great to point out hundreds of thousands of people made Project Apollo a success.
0: As we go now through this conversation, we keep uh, fast forwarding through the past hundred years of flight, thinking back to the Wright brothers at the beginning of the show and spaceflight, which uh, I don't dare say is cooler when I'm sitting next to a fighter pilot, but we'll just say <laughs> spaceflight is pretty darn cool. How did the Apollo program help set the stage for subsequent missions and programs? So we have the learnings from more than 20 years on the International Space Station and other steps along the way, but now with Artemis, NASA and its partners around the world are going back to the moon. And it's not the first time, but this time we're going back to stay. And what lessons from Apollo will most importantly, do you think, be applied to Artemis?
2: One important lesson from Apollo is bring duct tape. (laughs) It may sound like a, a, a sort of a silly response, but I can tell you there are many instances during the Apollo program where the duct tape they had on board saved the day. And that's part of this larger culture of the Apollo program which is be prepared and the the training that went into every single mission, every single aspect of Apollo was what are these elements that was essential to its success And so for an Apollo mission um, the astronauts would tra- train roughly eight hours for every hour of the mission and that's on top of all of their previous training um, in general. Uh, They really ensured that they would be prepared for any problem that came their way. And then, you know, they still had duct tape on board for things that arose where they didn't anticipate. And so the Apollo program has many, many lessons to learn. Um, That's just one of them. And I'm sure uh, the Artemis program is taking that into consideration.
1: That's a good point. You know, as we think of the objectives and aspirations of the Artemis program, what are some of the key similarities and differences between the two programs? You've alluded to some, but what stands out in your mind?
2: One of the important differences between Apollo and Artemis is there are different rationales for these programs. And so the Apollo program was really driven by Kennedy's interest in advancing U.S. foreign relations within the Cold War context. So for Kennedy, Apollo primarily was about winning hearts and minds and what it could do for the United States within the Cold War context. And that's not to say people on the program didn't care about other aspects of it, about the science Um about the engineering advances, but Artemis is a different type of program. If you look at the rationale for Artemis, um, you'll see a few different things. So one of them is that during the Apollo program, we did not stay very long. So Artemis is going to create a sustained presence on the moon. They're going to include more people. So women, people of color, and international astronauts will be going to the moon. Um, and there's also this expectation for economic benefit and for science. And so Artemis is motivated by a lot of different things. There are a lot of different goals. It's a much longer-term program.
0: A sustained presence uh, on the moon. Pretty exciting idea to think about. Not only what we could learn scientifically, but also what it could mean for the development of a cis-lunar economy and... When we say cislunar economy, we're talking about economic activities taking place in space, either on the moon or in orbit around the earth or the moon. There's still so much ahead of us. Discuss with me, Tiesel, if you would, a little bit about just what you're excited about, about this next chapter, you know, with with your life's work and, and all you have done. What is it that Artemis is getting ready to do that most excites you?
2: One of the things that excites me most about future lunar exploration is the possibility of building radio telescopes on the far side of the moon. I have this deep interest in astronomy and astrophysics and the potential of setting up observatories on the far side of the moon is quite exciting. And we've seen the impact of the Webb Space Telescope most recently. And And thinking through what might be possible, using the moon as a base for a huge, huge observatory, multiple observatories, is quite thrilling. And and that would be made possible in part by the Artemis program.
0: About time to wrap up. And so I'm going to take you back to your wheelhouse. How do you describe to somebody what Apollo did, not just for humanity, what it did for space exploration, but what it did for America? What did Apollo do for us?
2: One of the great achievements of Apollo was how it was able to bring people together and create a sense of optimism and sort of forward-looking perspective and and hope that was expressed by many people at the time. And one of the things I like referring back to is when the Apollo 11 astronauts were on the lunar surface, President Nixon called them up and he, um, he made comments about how They had traveled farther than any humans had traveled uh, before. That was an achievement. You know, the first steps on another celestial body was so exciting. But he also recognized that more people came together than had ever come together before. And that was a new event in human history. So... A greater number of people on the Earth participated in a single event, and I think it's important to pay attention to that aspect of the Apollo program. So, yes, we sent humans to the moon for the first time. They landed there, returned safely back to Earth, but we also came together in greater numbers. And there was a sense of unity and a sense that we were citizens of the world as opposed to citizens of just one country.
0: You know, as a 13-year-old boy at the time, standing on my lawn looking at the moon the night Neil Armstrong stepped on it, and it made such an impact on me as, as a 13-year-old. And, you know, that was your comment about how it drew us together. I, I couldn't agree with that more as somebody who was young and impressionable at the time. It, I mean, it marked me for the rest of my life. I can't go outside without looking at the moon at night. And I hope that's what it does for the Artemis generation so thank you so 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 much for your time today this was a great way for us to start our next season
2: well thanks so much for having me on it was a real pleasure speaking with you
0: that was so cool hearing from dr muir harmony and better understanding the role politics played in the apollo program now if that wasn't cool enough let's get right into part two Our second guest, Dr. Harrison Schmidt, flew with the crew of Apollo 17, the final Apollo mission, making him one of the last humans to walk on the moon. He's earned many titles throughout his career at NASA, most notably as the first and only professional scientist without a military background to step foot on the lunar surface. Dr. Harrison Schmidt, what an honor. It's great to have you here. Well, it's great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. So we're going to get started with this. We're excited to continue this episode with a former NASA Apollo astronaut. But before we get into your insights on the Apollo program, let's start with how you came to be one of the last men on the moon. You were originally slated to fly on the Apollo 18 mission. However, NASA canceled the program and announced Apollo 17 would be the last. And as I understand it, you were moved to the Apollo 17 crew and had support from other scientists saying it was important to get you as a geologist onto that last Apollo mission. So tell me more about your journey to becoming an Apollo 17 astronaut and why it was so important to have a geologist on that mission.
3: Well, it was important to have geology as part of the Apollo program, and that was recognized well before even Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong. People in NASA were of one mind that uh, science had to be included in the program, and it just developed from there, and it began really with Uh, Harry Hess and George Lowe and Homer Newell was involved in NASA's side in uh, deciding that they would select in the fourth group of astronauts a group of scientists. I was uh, for a while being considered, at least at headquarters, as a prime crewman for the Apollo 15 lunar module pilot uh, position. Deke Slayton was never too enthusiastic about having scientists in the astronaut program to begin with, and he, uh, as near as I can tell, persuaded Uh, Low that, well, let's put him on the backup crew. So I joined Dick Gordon and Vance Brand on the backup crew for Apollo 15. But Apollo 15 gave me a chance to really get into a mission uh, ready uh, kind of posture. And during the Apollo uh, 15 uh, activities, it became clear finally to the astronaut office, at least, that uh, Apollo 18 was not going to fly. And that would have been Dick Gordon's mission with Vance and myself. And so then. Headquarters began to put a lot of pressure on Slayton and finally just overruled him and said, You're going to put Jack Schmidt on that mission. And, uh, and I flew instead of uh, Joe Engel on the Apollo 17 mission.
1: Oh, that was a great beginning. Now, in your book, Return to the Moon, you write Whenever and however a return to the moon occurs, one thing is certain that return will be historically comparable to the movement of our species out of Africa about 150,000 years ago. That framing of space exploration alludes to a major impact on the arc of humanity. What is so consequential about human space exploration, with Apollo being that first step of bringing humans beyond the bounds of Earth's gravity?
3: It is gratifying to see that NASA has picked up to some degree on the theme that you just articulated from my book, And that now the consequence is not only to go to the moon to stay, but to use it as preparatory to go on to Mars. And the reason why this is so important to the human species is that the Earth is not necessarily and and theoretically not a permanent place to have the species reside. And so uh, we really are doing pretty much what uh, was done as the species moved out of Africa in that we're beginning to lay the groundwork for the species to populate at least the solar system. But I'm sure that it will go beyond that.
0: Apollo 17 was was obviously your first mission as an astronaut, but it wasn't your first time working on the Apollo program. You helped train several astronauts on how to be geologic observers while on the moon and then studied those samples upon return, right? Right.
3: That's true. What I did when I finally completed my pilot training and became an active person in the astronaut office, I was able to follow up on something that had been bothering me about the field geological training of the crews that were going to the moon. And I put together a plan that was approved by Alan Shepard. And so we began what I've been calling a simulation-based training program in field geology. Simulation based in that we were using the equipment that was available to any given mission. And we tried to pick sites for their uh, training, familiarization not only with equipment and photography, but also with geology, pick sites that were relevant to their uh, planned mission to the moon. And that uh, program then was carried forward after Apollo 13 into 14, 15, and 16 with the crews getting up to a week a month uh, in the field, on specific geological areas, and, but still learning all this, the procedures and the equipment, uh, use of the equipment that was going to be necessary for their mission. And it really worked out extremely well. The, the gift that keeps on giving from Apollo, in science at least, are the samples. And uh, from those uh, six missions, we have 840 or so pounds of lunar materials that are still actively being researched today. I'm very deeply involved in that myself, primarily in trying to synthesize all the analytical work that's gone on uh, on the Apollo 17 uh, mission samples, but uh, still many, many others are, are working. Graduate students uh, through many generations now have uh, been trained on, uh, in the lunar science and planetary science because of what we did on Apollo. And that was a result, not just of Apollo 17, but of the training and the uh, enthusiasm of the other crews.
1: You know, when you came out for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, just four years ago, and it was amazing, you know, to talk about your experiences. And I'd like to uh, talk about what's it like to be on the moon. The Apollo program left a huge impact on our scientific understanding of the moon, and it continues to inform our current space exploration ambitions. So while on the surface of the moon with Mission Commander Eugene Cernan, the two of you completed three moonwalks each over the course of the mission, resulting in the longest total duration of lunar surface extravehicular activity on a single mission. So EVA refers to the time spent outside of a space vehicle or space station. With all that time spent on the lunar surface, can you share with all of us Earthbound humans uh, what it was like to walk on the moon? I can only begin to imagine.
3: Well, the best answer that I have to that question is imagine yourself on an infinite expanse of beach sand with one-sixth gravity giving you the feeling as if you're walking on an infinite trampoline. And that's what you get used to very quickly, it turns out. I don't think any Artemis astronaut is going to have any difficulty at all adapting uh, rapidly in an hour or so to that experience and, and having a great time doing it. It really is a remarkable opportunity for uh, enjoyment as well as for productive exploration. The visual aspects of being on the moon are really uh, quite remarkable as well. You have to realize at least for Apollo 17, we were in a valley deeper than the Grand Canyon. But I think the difficult thing to get used to, but people will get used to it the longer you're there, is that the sky is black. Uh, It's not blue like you're used to here. And so uh, having these brilliantly illuminated mountains placed against a blacker-than-black sky, with your home the Earth over one of them continually, Anytime you wanted to look up and see home, you could. Even though it was 250,000 miles away, it still was home. <laughs> Someday you have to realize that there will be a generations of young people who will maybe come back to Earth and look up at the moon as home. That'll be an interesting time in history to see that happen. Since we're on this
0: topic, the blue marble taken during the Apollo 17 mission, one of the most famous photos of the Earth. It not only is visually striking, which it is, but it's become a symbol often found in classrooms, film, TV, throughout popular culture. Many of us have seen the iconic image at least once in our lives and have been
3: wowed by its beauty. Talk about that. Well, this is going to sound nerdy to some people, but when I launched, I carried in my spacesuit pocket the latest full Earth satellite pictures in black and white at that time. And I, it was part of a plan that I had uh, organized with the meteorologist at Patrick Air Force Base to spend three days observing weather patterns, cloud patterns, on the Earth and to document those with Hasselblad photographs such as the blue marble. The blue marble picture is one of many, many pictures of the Earth that I took to document these weather observations. Uh, over a three-day period. And so, again, being somewhat nerdy, it was just part of the plan (laughs) is to have a chance to see it. And then you also have to realize that geologists wouldn't be surprised at seeing the earth out the window. I mean, we're geologists for crying out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And, And we know that the earth is in space, and we've been studying it here And to see it out in space and yeah, that's where it's supposed to be. (laughs) Now, other people of other professions may not have that same reaction, but it was really a a glorious time and a wonderful time to have, is to be able to observe something that you're reasonably familiar with, but doing something special, and that is to try to understand some of these Southern Hemisphere weather patterns that were, at the time, far more mysterious than uh,
1: they are today. It's an amazing perspective. Jack, one of the things that's uh, pretty impressive as a geologist, your expertise and insight were vital to the success of Apollo 17 when it came to collecting moon samples. Throughout Apollo, 2,200 separate lunar samples totaling 842 pounds that you mentioned were returned to Earth. A portion of a rock will be sent
3: to a representative agency or
1: museum in each of the countries represented by the young people in Did you learn from these samples? Do any of the samples from Apollo 17 stand out to you?
3: One thing that was particularly interesting to me is in studying the uh, orange soil, the so-called orange soil, turned out to be volcanic ash that had erupted about 3.5 billion years ago in this valley. But the isotopic ratios of that ash are starting to tell us about the interior of the Moon. That volcanic ash had to come from somewhere and its isotopic ratios are very different than what we see in the other lunar samples. And uh, and in fact, they match to a significant degree the ratios that we see in what are called stony meteorites, chondritic meteorites. And it's starting to say that the interior of the moon really has been cool for most of its history relative to the rest of it. And that starts to make people start, uh, question, certainly I, I have questioned for a long time, this idea that the moon formed by a giant impact of a uh, mars sized asteroid on a young earth, Uh, that I think is probably not the way the moon formed. Uh, But, and part of the evidence for that skepticism comes from these isotopic ratios. And so once you start to dig into the details of what other people have analyzed, but have not had a chance to really look at as a whole, we're starting to see some very intriguing things
0: in a whole lot of ways as we kind of transition a little bit to to Artemis. We've kind of come full circle since the Apollo days, with both NASA and the private sector setting their eyes once again on the moon. And with the Artemis program, NASA, as we know, aims to get back to the moon and, and to stay there. And it's an entirely different mission set. But Artemis builds on so many of the learnings from you and the Apollo program. And so let's compare and contrast here a little bit, Harrison, if we could. What are you most excited to see come from the Artemis program, and why is it important we get back to the moon?
3: Well, the most important thing is Artemis is clearly focused on the uh, polar regions, particularly the South Pole. We don't know a great deal about the South Pole. Uh, We know it's cold. (laughs) The lighting conditions are very dynamic, and and that is going to be a real challenge operation. The number of major events that have to go right in order to actually land on the moon is about three times the number of events that had to go right for Apollo. And that's a big challenge. Now, fortunately, NASA's younger than it was a decade or two ago, and it's young people that are going to make this happen. It was young people that made Apollo happen, and it's going to be young people that carry off the Artemis program.
1: So the Artemis project is not only an important step to getting astronauts back to the moon, but establishing a Permanent lunar base. The goal requires, as I understand it, inventing and testing new technology along the way, with figuring out what lunar architecture is required, and to achieve this new mission. You know, in your book, uh, Return to the Moon, you write, "A prime objective of private lunar initiative will be to establish a permanent and ultimately independent settlement on the moon." Now, you go on to give several thoughts and suggestions, however that are practical about how we could eventually have settlements on the moon, ones that could even provide tourism and science centers for further learning. Why is it important to establish a base and possibly a permanent settlement, and what will it look like? You know, Some people talk about structures above on the surface. Some people talk about structures underneath the surface. What's some of your thoughts, sir?
3: Well, you'll probably have habitats in both areas. I tend to think that it's going to be uh, more viable to be on the surface and to provide the insulation necessary both for thermal control as well as for radiation control. But I would say that, you know, let's study all of these options and see which ones really start to make sense. We know a lot more than I think we're really integrating into uh, these kind of thoughts. We've had an awful lot of time here to speculate on how these might be done, and and not nearly enough time just to be practical uh, about how to operate in that environment. As you can see, I'm very optimistic that the challenges of working on the moon are not going to be really much different, for example, than the challenges that faced the first inhabitants of the new world or face the first tribes that moved out of Africa into Europe. They face comparable environmental challenges, maybe more difficult even than ours because they didn't have the technology uh, that we have developed in the meantime. I'm very optimistic that living on the Moon is going to someday become routine, that uh, you will have tourists not only going to the Moon, but uh, some generations of lunar inhabitants will come back to Earth as tourists.
1: That's true.
3: There were so
0: many advancements with Apollo, uh, but all this talk about living and working on the Moon and the mission to Mars makes me think, we really are just getting started, and you've made that obvious today. And so, so we've used up our time limit and our question limit, and I just have to tell you, Dr. Smith, as a young teen in the 60s and watching every Apollo mission, I held my breath like the rest of the planet when Apollo 11 went around the dark side and waited anxiously for it to come out the other side and just you know we were all those people at the time and and I'm excited to see that maybe this generation now this it's this generation's turn and they seem to share some of that common excitement Yeah, impressive
1: times great history incredible uh, present-day excitement and wow For the future. It's just going to be something to really watch. So thank you, sir.
0: You know, you look good enough and sound good enough to go back (laughs) up. I mean, you could hop on one of those Artemis (laughs) flights and beat John Glenn's uh, age record for being in space, you know.
3: (laughs) Well, if somebody would ask, I think I'd jump in the chair.
0: (laughs) Harrison, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
3: Well, thank you, and good luck to the wings and to uh, everything that you all are doing. Golly, what a cool opportunity
0: to get some really unique perspectives on the Apollo program. Dr. Harrison Schmidt is the author of Return to the Moon, Exploration, Enterprise, and Energy in the Human Settlement of Space. Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony is the author of Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo, and Apollo to the Moon, a history in 50 objects. We'll leave links in the show notes. So if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check those out. There were so many interesting aspects of Apollo I hadn't considered. You know, John, what I loved really today, Harrison Schmidt at 88 years of age, how he's still involved in the space program, how brilliantly he recalls every aspect of his journey with Apollo. He's a remarkable, remarkable man. And I was really taken with that. And of course, uh, Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony, what I appreciated from Teasel was her enthusiasm for Apollo. And I think that goes a long way towards others in her generation and, and those younger to create some enthusiasm. And then for what Apollo was and what it meant and how that will direct them into maybe a better appreciation for Artemis.
1: Well, What she brought to us is a perspective from a younger person looking back on history for Apollo program and translating that into current day for the generation that is in, you know, right now is going to be deeply involved in going back to the The moon and then hopefully to Mars. In fact, uh, we kidded about it, you know, between you and I, but the person who's going to be walking on Mars is a teenager today, probably. So she kind of helped bring that connection to the present day, while uh, Dr. Schmidt uh, was able to give us perspective from the past.
0: Absolutely right. You know, we're going to have to increase the uh, price of admission to this if we keep (laughs) bringing, you know, all this great content. That's going to do it, folks. We hope you enjoyed episode 21 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening. A reminder, be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. Now, don't forget, we have 10 new episodes coming out every other Monday, okay? Make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and subscribe. You're not going to want to miss this, I'm telling you. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a review. It's the best way to get our show out there and we greatly appreciate hearing from you that's it we'll see you next time right here on behind the wings